Hey everyone, welcome back to Shades of Crime. Last week I told you about the murder of Brenda Way, and this week's episode is a bit of a continuation on that. So if you haven't listened to my previous episode, you should go back and hear it just for a bit of context. But without further ado, get ready, because things are about to get shady. spring of 1985, 17-year-old Elizabeth Gail Tucker was living with her mom in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. It was around this time that Elizabeth was offered a job packing fish in rural Nova Scotia. Looking for a taste of freedom and some financial independence, Elizabeth was eager to take this job, and she even had some friends out towards where she would be working. Elizabeth's job was to start on May 1st, so on April 30th, she had packed up her things and was ready to leave. The only problem was, where she was headed is about three hours away from Dartmouth, so that means that she couldn't really take public transportation, and her family couldn't drive her there either. So, she had a different plan. Elizabeth was going to hitchhike to a place called Weymouth, which Today is about a two and a half hour drive, but back then it was a longer drive because there was no direct road leading there, so it was about a three hour drive total. And then when she got to Weymouth, she would be taking the train to Digby where her fish packing job took place. Elizabeth had this all planned out, so she had a group of friends waiting for her at the Weymouth train station and they were all going to take the train together to her new job. Early in the day on April 30th, Elizabeth had started her adventure towards the Weymouth train station, and she had called her friends to update them with everything that was going on. So after a few hours, her friends went to meet her at the Weymouth train station. But when they got there, Elizabeth wasn't there. But I guess this isn't that abnormal. She was hitchhiking, so maybe she was having troubles getting a ride. Or maybe someone had unintentionally taken her in the wrong direction. There's a lot of different variables that could happen while hitchhiking. But dread started to set in when hours began to pass. And eventually they had to call the police because they knew something was wrong. Searches for Elizabeth carried out, but not much came of them. Police found that she had hitched rides to an area close to Weymouth, but she hadn't actually made it there. And the last person to have dropped her off was probably about half an hour outside of the Weymouth train station. But since the police knew where she was dropped off, that meant that they had an area to search. But these searches yielded nothing. Not even a sliver of evidence was uncovered. Naturally, police began to look into the people that had come forward saying that Elizabeth had hitched rides with them. However, they were able to quickly clear all of them, and again, they met a dead end. Based on what they could see, it seemed clear that Elizabeth had caught another ride at some point, 
and she ended up somewhere undisclosed, and the person who drove her has not stepped forward. But without that person, they didn't have a lot to go off of, so that meant that the case started to grow cold. Days passed, and still no sign of Elizabeth. But after five months, finally, something surfaced. But it wasn't good news. Five months after Elizabeth's disappearance, a hunter out on an old logging road in rural Nova Scotia, not far from Weymouth, stumbled upon a badly decomposed body. He quickly reported it to police, and police were able to identify it as Elizabeth. Elizabeth was found wearing jeans but no shirt or bra, and no other clothing. And despite her state of decomposition, it was glaringly obvious that she had been stabbed repeatedly, and that it was a ferocious attack. But due to the state of decomposition, investigators couldn't tell if she had been sexually assaulted, and there was no evidence to be recovered. So as quickly as Elizabeth's case was rekindled, it slowly started to fizzle out again. And day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, there was nothing to be found on Elizabeth. That was until 1998, a whole 13 years after Elizabeth's murder. Forty-seven-year-old Joan Hicks had moved from Newfoundland all the way to New Brunswick after she had become a pen pal with an inmate in a New Brunswick prison. Their letters became romantic, and quickly they became involved, and Joan felt that she needed to be near her boyfriend. So Joan, with her 11-year-old daughter Nina, moved to New Brunswick to live next to the prison where her boyfriend Aubrey Sparks lived. At first, they didn't have anywhere to live. Joan and Nina were living in a homeless shelter, but eventually they managed to find a basement apartment that was not too far away from the prison. But during their time in the homeless shelter, Joan had made many friends, and on the night of November 11th, 1998, Joan had invited a few people over just to hang out. That night, police received a phone call from a man named Glenn Bennett, stating that he was a witness to a murder. Police arrived on site to a gruesome scene. Joan had been beaten, strangled, and had her throat slit, and her pink nightgown was up over her head. Nina was found in the bedroom closet, hanging from her clothing rack, by a belt which was used to strangle her to death. Glenn was on the scene, awaiting police arrival, and when they got there, he had a haunting tale to tell them. Glenn and another man named Michael Wayne McRae were driving around that night high on cocaine, and they were talking about how they wanted to find someone to murder. Then, Michael's girlfriend was invited over to Joan's house, and that's when Michael knew that she was the target. While McRae was in Joan's apartment, he had gone down to the bathroom, and he called out to her saying that he needed some toilet paper. So Joan went to the bathroom, and when she got there, McGray took her and smashed her head against the bathroom wall. From there, he started to strangle her, 
but unconvinced that she was truly dead, McRae went out to the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and went back and slit her throat. Glenn pointed in the direction of McRae, and when he was apprehended, he confessed to Joan's murder and corroborated the story that Glenn had given. However, he had one slight difference. He was adamant that he would never kill a child. He said that was solely Glenn's doing. However, police didn't buy this, so they arrested him and he was quickly charged with two first-degree murders, that of Nina Hicks and that of Joan Hicks. But this was just the start of the confessions of Michael Wayne McRae. Hoping to receive better living conditions, McRae began talking about other murders that he had done. The first of which was that of Elizabeth Gail Tucker back in 1985. McRae had information on the case that had not been released to the public, and the police knew that he was telling the truth, and they just needed the story. And let me tell you, it's a gruesome one. On April 30th, McRae encountered Elizabeth hitchhiking along Highway 101. McRae was out driving with an unnamed friend while they were both drinking rum and smoking pot. Elizabeth was along the road hitchhiking not far from Weymouth. They picked her up, and while she was in the car, they asked if she wanted some rum. Elizabeth turned it down, so then they asked if she wanted some pot. She turned that down too. And this kind of made them a bit upset. Then McRae decided he was going to ask her if she would have sex with him for $30. This really set Elizabeth off, and she began to freak out. She started screaming, let me out of this car, and she started putting up the fight, so they pulled over and they let her out of the car, but at this time, they were on a disused logging road with no one around. Elizabeth had nowhere to go. At that time, McGray came out of the truck, he pinned her down, and attempted to rape her. But he was unsuccessful, he couldn't maintain an erection, and this really infuriated him. He flew off into a blind rage and pulled a knife out of his pocket and began stabbing Elizabeth repeatedly. He was furiously stabbing, non-stop, until about halfway through, he decided to get up, go take a shot of rum, and then came back and started stabbing her some more. Once he was sure she was dead, McGray put her jeans back on. Without putting anything else back on, he threw her just off the side of the road and drove off. He felt no remorse for what he had done and he didn't even attempt to hide the body whatsoever. He had just left it on the side of this unused road for someone to stumble upon. Unfortunately, it took a long time to find Elizabeth, and even longer to find her killer. But to an extent, at least now her mother has some closure. But she said that she would much rather be talking to her daughter than talking to the media about the solving of her daughter's case. But there was still more to McGray's stories. After confessing to Elizabeth's murder, McRae was dealt out another life sentence, putting him at a total of three life sentences, but he wasn't done saying what he had to say. Prior to his current sentence, McRae had served time in jail. It was during this period in 1991 that he was granted a one-week furlough. During this, he traveled to Montreal, and on April 1st, he met a man at a gay bar named Gayton Ethier. 
They talked at the bar, and eventually, McRae went home with Gayton. While at his house, they hung out, watched TV, drank, and just sort of chilled. It wasn't a sexual thing from all accounts, but McRae crashed on the couch. But that morning, he had gotten up and he went into Gayton's room and stabbed him to death. McRae left the site just as it was when he stabbed him to death. No cleaning, no nothing. And he proceeded to go out and start cruising the gay bars again. On April 6th, McRae met a 59-year-old retired teacher named Robert Astley. Again, McRae went to his home after talking with him at the bar all night. They went back to his apartment where they drank beer and watched some sort of sports game. I'm not sure what it was really. This time, McGray threatened Astley's life. He said that he was going to stab him to death. And I mean, naturally, Astley kind of thought it was a joke. He laughed it off a bit. I mean, if someone tells me they're going to stab me with a knife and I've just been hanging out with them all night, then I don't know. Maybe they're joking. But Robert Astley laughed it off. That was until McRae came up to him, smashed his beer bottle over his head, and then a fight for Astley's life ensued. Astley was fighting back fiercely, but as soon as McRae pulled his knife out of his pocket and began stabbing, it was over. Again, McRae had slaughtered another person and left the scene just as it was when he killed them. No attempts to clean, and clearly no remorse. During this time, Montreal's gay village was experiencing a problem with murder. Between 1985 and 1993, at least 14 gay men were murdered in sexuality-related slayings, but the real number was likely much more. However, at that point, there was no investigation into what was going on. Police kind of pushed it to the side because gay people were a marginalized people in society, and... As is clear, people who live on the margins really don't get paid attention to. They have to be screaming from the rooftops to get anything. So that meant that when Robert Astley and Gayton Ethier were both murdered, no one cared to find out who had done it, even though the scene was left so sloppy that any evidence could have been pulled. But I guess then again, who would suspect someone who was technically in jail? It was for that exact reason that McGray openly stated that his targets were gay men, sex workers, and sometimes homeless people, because he knew he was able to get away with these slayings. And he was right. It wasn't until he decided to murder with someone else that he finally got caught. By 2001, McGray had been charged with six murders in the first degree. Those murders were of Elizabeth Gale Tucker, Robert Astley, Gayton Ethier, Joan and Nina Hicks, and Mark Gibbons. The murder of Mark Gibbons happened after he and Gray had attempted to rob a cab. The plan failed, and McGray decided to turn on him. In 1987, McGray stabbed him to death following this failed taxi heist. Although these were the six charges laying on McGray, he claims to have committed upwards of 16 murders, ranging from Seattle to New York, and all across Canada. For his six murder charges, McGray was given six consecutive life sentences and was serving time in a BC maximum security institute. 
However, in 2010, psychologists deemed that McGray was fit for transfer to a medium security prison. McGray protested this, saying that he was still a threat, but the transfer carried forward nonetheless. This was mostly because Gray was mostly against having a roommate, and basically the prison system didn't want to give in to the demands of someone who was a convict. In his new prison, McGray was placed in a room with 33-year-old Jeremy Phillips, who was serving six years and nine months for assault with a bat during a drug deal back in 2003. While living with McGray, Phillips told fellow inmates and guards that he had feared McGray and that he felt he was walking on eggshells to avoid upsetting him. While the inmates understood his concerns, the officials of the jail thought that it was just talk, and they left Phillips in the cell, not listening to this man saying he was fearing for his life. On November 22, 2010, prison guards checking in on McRae and Phillips happened upon a grisly sight. Phillips was found strangled to death and tied to a chair in his cell. The night before, McRae shredded his sheets and used the sheet strips to tie up Phillips. After doing this, he shoved his sock in Phillips' mouth to quiet him and then strangled him to death in his cell. When asked why, McGray claimed that it was part of an escape heist, but the police department didn't really buy this. Back when McGray was arrested, he had claimed to reporters that being in prison was not going to stop him from killing, and he was right. But no one listened, and a man lost his life six weeks before he was up for parole. Following this, McGray was charged with his seventh first-degree murder charge and was transferred to a maximum security prison in Quebec, and that's where he sits to this day. While McGray claims to have killed people across Canada and in parts of the United States, there's one thing worth mentioning. McGray spent time in Nova Scotia, in Dartmouth, in 1995. Based on his M.O. and location, McGray was deemed the primary suspect in the murder of Brenda Way, and based on this, Glenisoon was exonerated on his murder charges in 2017. However, McGray has never been charged with this murder. So what do you think? Glenn was known to be a violent and abusive boyfriend, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a murderer. Whereas we know McGray targeted sex workers, and the method of Brenda's murder fit the bill exactly to what McGray did. But if McGray did it, why hasn't he come forward? He's come forward with so many other confessions. Minus that of Nina Hicks, he has confessed to all charges laid against him. I'd like to hear your thoughts, because I'm really not sure. But what I do know is Brenda Way and all other victims of Michael Wayne McGray deserve justice, and I hope that one day it will be given to them. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with a new episode of Shades of Crime. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shalee Musso. This episode was written, researched, and hosted by me. You can find Shades of Crime on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. You can find this podcast basically anywhere where you get podcasts. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. Sources for this episode will be posted on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca.
If you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to get the word out about us, and it helps boost our listeners. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.